0: Titus. We introduced Titus last time, but we were, a little bit, we were a little bit rushed for time. I want to review a couple things and then move on to verse 1. The subject of the revelation in this epistle, the subject of the revelation in the epistle to Titus is the true church of Jesus Christ. What Paul said about the church in Titus is that it must be orderly. So the subject of Titus is the true church, and what he says about that subject is the church must be orderly. First, he revealed the motive uh, behind church order, or the why. Why should a church be orderly? And you may ask, why do we even preach on this? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because a great deal of Christianity does not believe in an orderly worship service, or an orderly church. As a matter of fact, the more random, the the better it is. Well, well, Paul not only here but in First Corinthians d- debunks that myth entirely. A church should have some order to it. Why should it be orderly? Well, it must be orderly because people must come to the knowledge of the truth that leads to behavior that is consistent with the character of God, and that's a very important concept. Very important concept in the book of Titus. The the people must come to the knowledge of the truth that leads to behavior. That is consistent with the character of God. Disorder in a worship service makes it difficult for others to concentrate. You know how that is. You know, somebody sticks their head in the door and goes panhandling for money and right when you get, and it always happens. Let me tell you from a pastoral point of view, it almost always happens when I'm getting to what's called the central proposition of the sermon. I, I can mark it down that this is when something's fixing to happen. It's when you get right to the heart of the sermon. Somebody, somebody sticks their head in the door. Somebody's you know, cell phone accidentally goes off. And, and don't feel, feel bad if yours has. Mine went off twice this semester in class after I already had chastised the students for never letting your cell phones go off. So I said, hey, it can, it can happen to anybody. But, but um, you know, it, it's, it, those are accidents. But, but still, it's a lack of order, and we need to keep them to a minimum. At least... At least when they happen around here, they're accidents. You know, people didn't purposely leave it on and have somebody play a joke on them and call them at, at church. That's not what happens. So we need to be careful. in a worship service makes it difficult for others to concentrate. And frankly, it distracts the one who's doing the concentration. Now, you may... I hope... I hope I don't show it sometimes, but believe me, you know, if somebody like like over here we used to have in this in this worship service over here, we used to have people that would get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the Sunday service, not go out the back door, but walk all the way down the aisle, walk all the way to the front and all the way out the side. You know, I learned what I need to do is just stop for a minute. You know, because if I keep going like nothing's happening, and you keep looking over, at least your head looks up, and you know where everybody's eyes are? They're over to the side. It's like this. <laughs> Well, that doesn't do anybody any good. It distracts. Disorder generally. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about real disorder. I'm not talking about somebody's cell phone accidentally going off or somebody getting sick in a service and needing to go to the restroom. But I'm talking about somebody who doesn't care. But disorder generally, but not always, emerges from selfishness. It could be selfishness from the desire to comment about something that the pastor said. Whether it's positive or negative, it doesn't matter. It still distracts. It distracts me and it distracts everybody around you. You know, when when you're leaning over the person, it distracts me because I'm thinking, did they disagree with that? <laughs> How could they disagree with that? Now I wouldn't tell I wouldn't say that to you, but believe me, any communicator sees it. And the ones once that are more seasoned will uh, let it go. Some some uh, wouldn't. I've been in seminary with some people that, that wouldn't have let that go at all. So we need to be careful with orderliness in a worship service. Second Paul describes the method of church order, or the how. First, it was the why. Why do we need to be orderly so people can learn, so, so that there can be an environment of learning in a church? Second, how the church can be orderly, and it's done by the oversight of honorable and strong pastoral leadership, leadership that knows the Word of God and leads by practicing the Word. Leadership that knows the Word of God and leads by practicing the Word. Now, let me tell you what's happening in Christianity today. You're aware of it, but I'm going to at least remind you. Christianity today has adopted a more democratic method and and has looked down, it's, no, this started happening in the 70s in our country, has, has really started looking down upon strong leadership. And I'll tell you why that happened. Because around the country there were certain strong leaders that probably took their leadership too far and, and didn't exhibit love in their leadership. And so what some did... Names are not necessary, but, but, but some people did was, was they wrote text decrying strong pastoral leadership as if it was something sinful. This is Any kind of strong leadership is not sinful in and of itself. The words strong and sinful are not synonyms. You understand that? You, know, it's, you can be weak and sinful. You can be strong and sinful. The stronger the leadership, the more likely there will be order in a service so that people can learn and then people can behave consistently with what they've learned. So there's nothing wrong with strong pastoral leadership. Paul was a pretty strong leader. And in fact, he writes 1 Timothy to encourage Timothy to be a strong leader. It's funny, some of the very people that write the books putting down strong leadership then also put down Timothy. Listen, you can't have it both ways. You've got to pick one or the other. You know, Titus, we find out, is a stronger leader than Timothy. He doesn't have quite the same problems, but Paul still encourages him, because there are problems in Crete. He encourages strong leadership. The responsibility, Titus will be told by Paul, the responsibility of the church as a whole, meaning all Christians in a local church as well, and I love this. He says it in verse 10 of chapter 2, is to adorn the doctrine. Paul puts it in another place, to put on the new man. But here, here it's like if you had a brand new coat. It's getting to be wintertime. Say, say it was freezing cold outside. And, and someone gave you a really nice winter coat. And, and when you put that coat on, you're, a, you're adorning that coat, and you can go out into the elements, and you can face the elements in a better way. So that's what Paul wants us to do with this doctrine. He doesn't want us to learn it, and then look at it, and then set it right there on the shelf. And when anybody comes by and says, look at, that, look, at what I, look at what I learned last week, they don't want to look at your notes. They want to look at you. People don't care what your notes say. They care what you say and how you behave and how you love or don't love. That's what they care about. And that's what will be taught in this epistle. In fact, in fact by way of application, the epistle teaches several things. First, that the church will be powerful in the world to the extent that it reveals God's truth. The church's influence does not lie in our methods, but in the timelessness of the message. Not in the methods, but in the timelessness of the message. The timeless truth of the Word of God. That's what makes a church powerful. That's what makes the church, the church universal, powerful. It's God's timeless truth. Not some new dog and pony show that we have. Not some new method. Not some new gimmick. Oh, We're so wrong about that. What we've done is we've incorporated methods... which which in and of themselves are fine. But we've incorporated methods. In many cases, we've left the word behind. We've incorporated methods and left our Lord behind. And that's why, in many cases, the church is powerless, not powerful. Second, Titus will teach us that church leaders must be people who are under God's rule, under God's truth, (laughs) We shouldn't select leaders because they have good business experience, because they're good public speakers, because they, they may uh, have good social influence, because they're wealthy. In the spiritual life, it is the mastery of God's truth that qualifies one for leadership. And I don't mean that you know more truth. In fact, knowing more truth without doing more truth is a mark against the man, not in favor. And I say this convicting myself if it ever happens. I'm not afraid to do this. Knowing more truth without doing more truth is not a mark in my favor. It is a mark against me. And I wouldn't follow somebody that knew a whole lot but did very little. Because it makes me wonder. It really makes me wonder Do they really believe what it is they're teaching you. If it's not good enough for them, why is it good enough for you? You see? Titus is going to be, Paul is going to be very clear to Titus about this. Third, the epistle teaches that, in, that the power of an overseer is that of God's truth, not of his office. Just because a person holds an office doesn't, doesn't bring with it any, any kind of power from God. That power comes from faithfulness in teaching the truth and in shepherding the flock as they should be shepherded. And fourth, Titus teaches that the measure of success of a church is the extent to which the church's membership, fulfills their function in the world, hence Dr. Baker's comments over the weekend, which if you missed them, please, we'll have that, we'll have that CD available uh, fairly soon, both those CDs. Please catch it. It was powerful, both Saturday night and Sunday morning, and that's what he mentioned as well. We've got to fulfill our function in the world. We can't just sit back and, and wait for the world to come to us. One of the things that you're doing here is, is, is you're being prepared for the work of the ministry. One of the things I'm supposed to be doing is training you to go out there and do the work of the ministry. So the measure of our success as a local church is going to be by our verbal, our physical, our behavioral witness, as well as the amount of uh, information that we have in our soul. Paul didn't speak from his own authority like uh, many of the philosophers did. Paul spoke with the authority of God, and that gave him the power of his ministry. So, the message statement of Titus, and we'll come back to this over and over again by the time we finish. I hope you have it memorized, uh, not, not in words on a page, but in your soul. The church must be orderly so that it can fulfill its function, namely to proclaim God's truth in the world. The church must be orderly so that it can fulfill its function, namely to proclaim God's truth. In the world. Now the first verse, this is as far as we'll get tonight. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith or according to the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Paul first identifies himself. This is very typical in a letter in the ancient world. Today we do this differently. Today we would write, Dear Bob. And at the end of the letter we would write, Sincerely, Bruce. Back then they would say, From Bruce to Bob, right up front. So on the very top part of the scroll or the papyrus, you'd find out who it was from and who it was to. So Paul does that. He identifies himself as the human author of this letter. Now when we talk about Pauline authorship, or Paul said this, or Paul c- commands Titus to do that, we need to, to consistently remember that it's not Paul. The Holy Spirit is the divine author of this text. There's always a big A author and a little A author of any text of the scriptures. The big A author is always the Holy Spirit. Always. The little A author, in this case, is the Apostle Paul. So it's really God's message that's given to us through the Apostle Paul. But for shorthand, sometimes I will say, and others will say, Paul said this. But it's it just because Paul said it, carries no weight at all. It's because God the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul that we should pay attention to this. I recently had lunch with Bob Leitner. I love Dr. Leitner. He's been a mentor to me for many, many years. And he says, as he travels around the country, this is one thing that pastors are forgetting. We're getting, we're getting too much into the human author and we're forgetting to tell our congregations to remind us. Now, we know it already, but to remind our congregations that it's God that is speaking through this servant. God is speaking through Paul. And that's what Paul says next. Paul, a bond servant of God. Paul introduces himself then as God's servant, this term doulos also can be translated slave. Paul, Paul comes right out from the beginning. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm a great philosopher. He doesn't mention his education, which he could have. Uh, back in Tarsus he had a very good classical education in Jerusalem. He had a, a, a rabbinic education. He doesn't put Paul, Ph.D. This is why you should listen to me. Paul, I'm a slave of God. Slavery was widespread in the ancient world, and slaves were property with no freedom or rights. So why do you think Paul would use this phrase to describe himself? It's not a real flattering one, is it? Paul, a slave of God, or if you would prefer to soften it, Paul, a servant of God. It's the same Greek word. Why would Paul do that? Well, part of the answer may lie in Paul's understanding of the power of sin. see, all people are born under slavery to sin. Everyone's born under slavery to sin. And then, when we finally come to the place where we recognize Jesus Christ as our Savior, and where we trust Him and Him alone to to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life and, and a whole bunch of other things that He does at that particular moment, then we move from being slaves to sin. We've been taken out of that slave market of sin, but we're still slaves. Now we're slaves of God. Does that bother you? I hope it doesn't. That's the, the greatest honor any of us could have is to recognize that we are servants. We are slaves of the Almighty. Slavery's not such a bad thing if you've got the Almighty as your master. The thing that the reason to make slavery, the reason slavery was so bad is that there were bad masters, people who abused, but not God. So that's why he takes a negative term and uses it in a positive sense. Once we're redeemed, we have become slaves of God and we're employed in his service. I don't care what it is you do. Maybe a doctor or a lawyer or a police officer or a home builder or many, many teacher, many, many different things. But that's not what you really do. What you really do is you serve God. You serve. I hope you realize you serve God in the classroom. When you're a teacher, you may be an elementary school teacher. Do you realize you're serving God when you're teaching uh, one plus one equals two? You say, well, how, how can that be? If you're living your life in such a way that that, that, that child wants to be like you when they grow up, if, if your fellow teachers say, you know, I don't know how she handles that, then that, that class is horrible. But, but yet there's something about her. You're serving God when you're teaching Arithmetic. You can be serving God when you're filling out a tax form for someone. You should be serving God. no matter If you're giving someone an inoculation, or performing surgery, or whatever it may be. I don't know if you can serve them while you're writing a ticket. But maybe you can. <laughs> no, that's just a joke. Because you, you, are, you, are, you can serve God when you're, when you're exercising any kind of authority. Absolutely. And that's what we ought to do. You see, slave of Christ came to be a common title that believers enjoyed to have in antiquity. They were proud to have that. Proud in a good way, I mean. Paul uses it of himself. He uses it of himself in Romans 1, Galatians 1, and Philippians 1. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Because of the modern day aversion to using the word slave, sometimes translators won't translate this, Paul, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. But that's what he said. He also called Epaphras, a servant of Christ, or a slave of Christ, Timothy. And twice, Paul says that Christians should behave as slaves of Christ. So it's not a bad thing. James, Jude, and Peter also use the same terminology of themselves. Let's not be afraid of that. Doulos, or the term slaves or servant, is used of all Christians in 1 Peter 2.16. And normally Paul calls himself and others slaves or servants of Christ. But here he says, Paul a bond servant of God. In fact, this is the only place in, in terms if you want some trivia. This is the only place that Paul calls himself a servant of God, not a servant of Christ, which is much more significant. Some don't really see much significance in the shift Paul use, does this sometimes. Elsewhere he'll switch verbs, and it means essentially the same thing, just for stylistic reasons. But I don't see it that way. A servant of God servant of God was a frequent designation in the Old Testament for really major characters. Abraham was called a servant of God. Moses was called a servant of God. David is called a servant of God. Daniel is a servant of God. The prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Amos, all took that designation. Servant of God. So I wonder if when Paul is writing to Titus, he's thinking of himself as a continuation not not in a terms of celebritieship. How can you think of yourself as a celebrity when you're calling yourself a servant? That's why it's a great designation. But he's thinking of himself as a continuation of that Old Testament lineage of servants of God. In fact, Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, in, in Hebrew Bible, the one who would be the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world, was actually more often called the servant of the Lord than the Messiah or the Mashiach. More, more commonly in Hebrew Bible, it's the term servant of the Lord. And this is brought out in the New Testament Gospel of Mark. So it's probable in my view that he uses this shift instead of calling himself a servant of Christ here to a servant of God in order to tie himself in with those who were servants in the Old Testament because we're going to see in Titus there is a problem, or at least a significant portion of the problem that Titus is going to be dealing with in Crete, it's coming from the Jewish population. In verse 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So I believe that he's carrying that designation to, to, to remind people that it's the same lineage, just as Abraham was a servant of God, just like Moses was a servant of God, David was a, the prophets were servants of God. I'm a servant of God. I'm not preaching my own message. I'm preaching God's message. Now, the idea of a servant is expanded in the next phrase. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other words, he's an authoritative messenger. He's one sent from Christ Jesus. The terms servant and apostle here carry a note of authority. That may sound strange. How can you say, well, I'm a servant, I'm a slave of this person, but yet I carry authority? If God sends his slave to tell you something, you might want to listen. It all depends on who the master is as to what the authority of the slave is. So there is a certain amount of authority here. He didn't speak from his own authority like Socrates or Plato or Aristotle would have done. He did possess a brilliant intellect. His intellect was every bit that of Socrates. I've read Plato. Believe me, Paul's intellect is every bit the intellect of Plato. He was blessed with this brilliant intellect. He was blessed with a serious education, both sacred and secular. And I have no doubt that Paul could have been one of the most respected philosophers of his day had he chosen that route. He could have gone to Athens and stayed there, and we, we may be reading Paul today. Paul the philosopher, not Paul the apostle. But then, had Paul done that, He would have traded the treasures of eternity for the adulation of his peers. Which brings up an application right from the start, and I'll close with this tonight. Whose approval do you seek? Now, we all want others to think well of us. That's normal. And in fact, it's socially desirable to have others think well of us. None of us should put on our Jerks for Jesus t-shirt and try to offend everybody we can come in contact with. We all want people to think well of us. That's normal. But the question I'm asking tonight runs deeper than that. The applicational question just from these first few phrases runs deeper than that. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, when you look back on it, who did you really seek to please? Was it your peers at work? Was it the ones who who vote whatever recommendations for achievement awards that it is in your own particular profession? Is that who you're really seeking to please? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your parents? All those are normal. We, We all want respect in whatever profession it is that we engage in, whatever occupation. We all want respect. Who is it that you really seek to please? Well, at the end of your life, you're going to find out that there was one you better not forget. At the judgment seat of Christ, when we all stand there, I hope, I hope it's not too late for you at that point. I hope it's not too late for you to... I, ho- I hope you have no regrets. By thinking, you know, I spent my whole life trying to please everybody but the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realize that now. I was trying to be a good friend. I tried to laugh at everybody's jokes. And I went along when I shouldn't have gone along. I didn't go to church cuz my my family didn't want me to. You know, I did I didn't serve like I should have served because I really needed to make partner. Uh, and I wanted to please the my my bosses. I got to tell you that's going to do you no good at all when you stand before Jesus Christ and he evaluates you. Paul was a bondservant, he was a servant, he was a slave of God, and he was happy to be that. He's also an apostle, he's one sent by Jesus Christ. And when we gather together next time, we're going to see why, why Paul was an apostle. What was the function of his apostleship, and what was the significance of it, for he says, there is a purpose for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to, or which leads to, Godliness or behavior that is godlike or consistent with the scriptures. But we'll save that for next time.